welcome to episode 102 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Hannah Rassinen. I'm Brittany Longbus. And I'm James Cone. <laughs> and we are recording in James and Hannah's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks! <laughs> so, last episode I promised that we would be back to our normal, like, streamlined episode structure of the show and i was immediately a liar <laughs> we have a lot to talk about today and so we're gonna we're gonna mix it up a little bit and that's why Brittany's joining us for this intro usually yes. like we flip-flop between these two host configurations mm-hmm. don't know what it's called but yeah. yeah we need all the contributors it. for this <laughs> yes okay first big thing that's happening right now it's carnival season it's mardi gras time yeah everybody's yeah. having fun yeah good time how are y'all doing with mardi gras right now good i'm a little drunk. <laughs> I, went, I went to Barkus earlier, mm-hmm. which is the dog parade. The dog recorder. parade. Yeah. The theme was Bark to the Future. Aww. It was great. So. Lots, of, lots of dogs. A lot of dog costumes. Yeah. And yeah. Cute. I think this is only our third parade this year. We've done Chewbacca's and Crudevu. Crudevu. And Barkus. The only one I've done is T Rex, so it's all ah! been like. Walking oh, parades man. in the quarter. What is that? That's like the, the little, little teeny per- tiny. Oh, uh, yeah, the little parade. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's I over have... in an hour. It's awesome. <laughs> I've never seen T Rex and I want to. Those little floats. Yeah. I accidentally went to the first one. We were like doing this yeah. bike ride thing and we stumbled upon it outside Bacchanal and it was like really small. And, <laughs> I don't know. Didn't it, it? It started before Chewbacca years ago, right? Yeah, they used to be on the same day. Yeah, that's when I saw it. Chewbacca has kind of like evolved into its own thing now. Yeah, so I don't like it anymore. Really? Too much? It's like, it used to be this like enclave of nerds and now it's just like hundreds of people in these different crews and it doesn't yeah. feel like it's, an insular yeah. thing it's anymore. Broad. The crowds are a little more dangerous. Like it's becoming those regular Mardi Gras crowds that get really mean where it's like, don't touch my chair and get Weird. out of my space. <laughs> where before it was just kind of like everyone's here to have fun and, and just watch this And also there's something about just like watching other people having fun, which is yeah. pretty much what it is. It's like they don't really throw anything so you're just kind of watching these other people party. Yeah. Now, I accidentally went to the first Chewbacca's as well. And what it used to be was on the St. Charles route, they went up the wrong side of the street without mm. a police escort. So it really was like just a bunch of nerds like yeah, that's parading. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know. That's kind of a good metaphor for nerdom in general, though. Like it's evolved mm-hmm. in this thing where like there are no nerds anymore. It's right. all pop culture. It's is like that. we yeah. all love Star Wars. Yeah. You know, what you're I mean? not special yeah. for that. Right. Yeah. I do like the Space Vikings, though. Hell Every yeah. year they have like that huge like buffalo, like that white buffalo cage. And they play like space dance music and they have axes. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, remember, I like that big Doctor Who head they made that's like a head in a jar. I don't watch oh! Doctor Who, but yeah. I think that's from that show. And this year, the, my favorite um, part of uh, Chewbacca's this year, was I think they were the poltergeist ghosts, but they were these huge, Ooh. like, gangly ghost creatures with these, like, horrible frowns, but they looked like they were having a great time dancing in the parade. <laughs> they are like, boo, boo. Anyway, yeah. Cool. It was great. Well, the next stop on our um, Mardi Gras schedule is that a bunch of us from Swamp Flakes will be dressed as Divine in the quarter. Crew Divine is our official Mardi Gras crew. It's all John Waters themed. Yes. So mm. if you see like four to five people dressed as divine, come say hello. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be it's, us. Yeah, yeah it's, it's us. Probably. <laughs> and another big thing that happened recently was all four of us gathered to watch the Oscars as if it was a sporting event this year. <laughs> that was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was it great. It was probably the best Oscars I've seen in a very long time <laughs> yeah. in recent memory. I feel like this Oscars ceremony was the most swamp flicksy one yet 
and I think it was very appropriate that we were all there to watch it because I think a mm-hmm. lot of people like just crapped all over this when it came out and it had like the least amount of viewers and I'm like I thought it was so fun yeah was it because of the Eminem performance if anything I don't know maybe that was I got hype that it was <laughs> the opening number that yeah, Janelle Monae did. Well, that I was actually so too. Good. I love that, and a lot of people didn't like yeah. it. Yeah, well, and that she was honoring these movies that were fantastic, like Midsummer and Us, these genre films that like didn't get movies. any. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That didn't Which get Oscar's so nice. attention. I thought that was great. Yeah. Also, it was just nice at Parasite. Yeah, the the right movie won. We were chanting bong 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 every time we went up to the stage. It's great, and it worked. And yeah, just kept winning. He just like looked like so genuinely surprised yeah. too, like yeah. And it was like you could tell that each award he thought it would be the last one. He's like, okay, now I can just like start drinking. I don't have to go up again. And then they would call his name, and he's like, oh just man, not prepared for it. I'm uh, going to drink until morning. Ah, <laughs> uh, so good. Well, it's it's always falling on Mardi Gras in the last few years. So I started watching it because. I would be like, oh, go out to Bacchus and then come to our house after the watch of the mm-hmm. Oscars. Mm-hmm. So the first time I did that was the year that Moonlight won over La La Land and had mm-hmm. that big, like, upset finish. Yeah. And that felt like sports yelling, you know? Right. <laughs> and then there was that other year recently, I think it was the next year, where Shape of Water and Get Out won a bunch of awards. Yes. And you know, last year with Green Book was not as fun, but no. just in general, I feel like more weird art films yeah. and like genre stuff has been like winning awards. And yeah. it's been really fun to watch. And I don't know, I'll probably continue to do it until it gets boring again. Yeah. I yeah. do think the best picture recently has tended to flip flop between like what should actually win and then a safe bet. So it's like, like Green Book is See, obviously a safe film. And now they're going a little outside the box with Parasite. I feel like next year it's going to be just kind of mill the road. I very much disagree with that because the last four years, if you look at those as a group, Green Green Book is the outlier because it was Moonlight, Shape of Water, Green Book, and Parasite. Now, one of those things is not like the other in that group. So which one? (laughs) Green Book. (laughs) Oh, right, right. Oh, of course. I'm just saying that like Moonlight and Shape of Water are not their normal thing the way we think of the Oscars. And I think Parasite is starting to establish like a pattern where they're like getting more adventurous yeah. than they used to be. I think it's gonna it's gonna be like a crash style. It's gonna win Best Picture next year. I think it's gonna be like a far right um, conservative and a far left liberal like falling in love. Mm. All <laughs> yes, of, like yes. you got mail. And I think it'll be some weird ass sci fi <laughs> movie uh, with monsters and uh, I don't know. That's what I hope for. I, I yeah, hope I'm just going to root for it. It's going to yeah. star Meryl right. Streep and Tom Hanks. Yeah, just manifest. But she's not going to be a human being for sure. No. <laughs> okay, so all that's fun to talk about. That's not really why we gathered everyone mm-hmm. here today. We are going to talk about a celebrity um, intervention we had with the website. Uh, every now and then, we like to shout out this one listener named Mr. Hot Dog Boy, who was the last person who gave us a review on <laughs> iTunes like four years ago. <laughs> and we hold on to that review in our hearts. It like really like oh, yeah. keeps us going. Yeah, yes, we do and it for you. We kind of like refer to the entire audience as Mr. Hot Dog Boy because uh, that's all we know is listening for sure. <laughs> we just think it's him. Yeah. And last episode, Brittany, I believe, uh, asked, you know, what is what were your favorite movies of the decade, Mr. Hot Dog Boy? When we were counting down our favorite movies of the 2010s, and he actually responded. He sent us an email with his favorite movies. I, I was crying at my cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> When I was reading uh, the list, I didn't think it was real. 
what else did he do? Oh, yeah, and he shouted out like his favorite like recommendations he's taken from the show, yeah. which really touched me because that's why we do this, so people like yes. check out more movies they haven't heard of, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Do y'all have any like general thoughts on Mr. Hot Dog Boy's top 17 of the 2010s? I loved his top 17. Or her. I don't know. I don't, Mr. Hot Dog Boy could also be a woman. I'm yeah, assuming. who knows? But I especially... I, I think the first entry was Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and I had totally forgotten that that movie came out in in that period of time. And I love that movie, um, and it's the only movie that has ever made me want to be a fishmonger. So <laughs> yeah, I I really uh, liked his list. I thought it was fantastic. I also loved his observations mm-hmm. on us as commentators. You know, like he kind of touched on Britney's like enthusiasm. And for uh, for like cultural objects that <laughs> like, no one else remembers, right? That no one and else no remembers. <laughs> and then branding your love of like freaky pornography things, <laughs> and then like me and you like debating in a civil way, and it was very endearing to like read someone that obviously like mm-hmm. listens to the show and felt like they kind of know us a little bit. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, that's why we do it. For him. For him. <laughs> really, it's just for you. <laughs> and That's I, the only reason we do <laughs> And I thought his takeaways were the, like, the best aspects of the yes. show, too. It yes. felt like very true to what the podcast is. His top of the decade list, like, number four was Mandy. And I'm like, God, he is, like, one of us. You know? <laughs> um, so that was awesome. And then also, I, I love that Ingrid Goes West made it. Because I totally mm-hmm. forgot about that movie when I was creating my list and then i'm like holy shit that was such a fucking good movie and i'm so glad that like he kind of brought it back um to my mind and it made me want to go watch it again so i'm probably gonna watch it next week (laughs) but yeah it's just really nice when you hear feedback from someone that like isn't in your circle it feels nice it's like validation that like what i'm doing it like matters you know, yeah. it feels really great. Even if it's so, just yes. for one person, it still <laughs> yeah, matters. But that one comment he made years ago has like given me the adrenaline to keep moving forward. <laughs> and this, I mean, at least another five years. <laughs> and for, for real, that comment, like that review really did get what we were doing. Like right, it was like, exactly. not that, you know, a, a few people with a movie podcast is that like exciting of a concept, but like Woo! the fact that we mix art house and like, basic cable trash right. like in mm-hmm. like the same breath i think yeah he sort of gets it and then also i think two of his movies that he picked were movies that we've had for movie of the year before get mm-hmm. out and yeah. annihilation. annihilation yeah uh so i don't know like i just really like that the right people have sort of stumbled upon this yeah even though yes. we're terrible at promoting what we do <laughs> so i don't know if you have any similar feedback even if you want to tell us we're terrible like Swampflicks at gmail.com. We do have an email address. I do check it. And we're always very excited to interact with people because it does not happen often. <laughs> um, it like honestly felt like an A-list celebrity had like contacted us. On yeah, the I, know. I know. I think we all melted a little bit. <laughs> I, I mean, I really would love to do an episode with Hot Dog Boy. I don't know if that's possible, if he's... Like, out there listening. We could do a Skype one. Right. I do, I do yeah. two of those a year in December. Because you don't have to come there. in with your face, right? You could just do vocals. So if he wants to keep the mystery about it. I'm scared that he's like a relative of one of ours. And he's just <laughs> oh, like, God. It's been my mom the whole I, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be your dad if anybody, honestly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he would pick that name. <laughs> I would cry again at my desk. <laughs> 
Well, I did publish Mr. Hot Dog Boy's entire email, and I will include it in the show notes for this. So if you look on the app that you're listening to this on, you can click right to it. Um, and he has, you know, really refined taste for a sentient hot dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe he can point you to other, like, movies we've talked about in the past and yeah. these, like, hundred or so episodes and, like, find a few gems in the rough there. He is so not a basic hot dog. No. Like, no. he's got some very interesting toppings. Yeah, I fully think. dressed. Fully dressed. Yeah. Well, today we are going to talk about the films of Celine Sciamma, who's a French director who we've been keeping track of over the years as like a movie pops up here or there, but Mm -hmm. we never really tackled her entire catalog. And she has a new movie out in the theaters that has prompted us to like look back at her career as a whole. Um, So that's going to be like sort of a sprawling conversation about one director. But before we get into that, we're going to recount the movies that we've been watching lately, which we have not done as a regular segment since last November, so there's a lot to catch wow. up on. Wow. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. Hot dog. You say you're really coming back. Hot dog. I'm waiting at the rail track. Hot dog. You say you're coming home for good. Hot dog. I'm gonna keep on knocking wood. Baby, I can hardly wait. I'm gonna meet you at the gate. Hot dog. And now we're going to go around and just talk about what movies we've been watching lately. Uh, not, you know, associated with the grand topics that we've been k- tackling lately. Just, mm-hmm. like, things we've just been picked out for ourselves to watch. And James had some, like, really big revelations about what he's been watching. I did it my family tree. So, apparently I found out from my dad that his father, my grandfather, his second cousin was Robert Mitchum, who I really fell in love with after watching Night of the Hunter. He's fantastic in that movie. I've seen some other of his films. And when I found that out, it just like brought me so much joy because he's such a great actor. I was like, yes, I'm related to him. So I kind of went on this Robert Mitchum kick for a while. And we found this movie called Out of the Past from the 50s. And I had found out about it because Roger Ebert called it maybe the greatest film noir of all time. So I was like, oh, shit. And it's got Robert Mitchum in it. I need to check that out. It's serious. It's serious, and it's seriously good. It's sort of your typical noir story of, like, you know, this guy that works in a gas station, this shadowy figure from his past, like, asks him to do one more job. And then it kind of cuts to, like, what led him to kind of go off the grid a little bit. And he was like this private detective that had to follow this woman that apparently shot this man played by Kirk Douglas and stole $40,000 from him and went to Mexico and he has to follow her and he falls in love with her. And you know, there's twists and turns, but it is such a fantastic noir. And now ever since then, I'm basically been obsessed with noirs from that time period. And this is the like, quintessential example of how to do a film noir it's so smoky and the dialogue is sort of a little overwritten and very melodramatic Mm -hmm. and it's got the strings and the damsel you know mr and it's very hard-boiled and all this stuff and it also like has maybe one of my like favorite bits of dialogue in any film i've ever seen hana you might (laughs) <laughs> want to help me out because I'm not good with the, yeah. the voices, but... So, basically, um, Robert Mitchum's character is following this woman, um, and they're, like, kind of starting this flirtation. Um, he's getting more and more interested in her, and then they're on the beach together, and 
um, she's they're talking about what she may or may not have done and and she says no but I promise I didn't take the money and he says baby I don't care <laughs> and he just gives her the like uh, a kiss and it's so he is so cool in this yeah. movie and like that's the thing like I've always even Night of the Hunter like even when he's playing a psychopath, like the dude is so fucking cool. Mm. I think of him yeah. as a terrifying drunk. That's my like Robert well, Mitchell Well, he actually was a like a drunk in real life. Yeah, and he's sort of that's how he plays these characters. They're sort of like laid back, like they've had a few. There's something really appealing about that to mm-hmm. me, and the fact that like in some weird way I am related to him that brings me so much joy. And I would love to do a Robert Mitchum episode at some point in the future yeah. because this guy has like such a vast catalog mm-hmm. and especially like I don't feel like we've ever really dived into like noirs specifically I can't name one we've done except yeah. for the the Stanley Kubrick one the killing played at Britannia uh, for their like Filmtopia uh-huh. and yeah we talked about that whole like film festival but other than that we haven't really touched that genre at all I would love to like go into that because it's really there's so many great films, and anyway, I'm related to Robert Mitchum, y'all. I, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Like, I don't, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, I'm very happy. This is great news to hear. Like, have you been drinking in the quarter all day? Uh, right. Right. <laughs> it was spooky too because you were talking. Your dad came in town a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking to you about that. And then, like the day that you told me, you opened up the Roger Ebert like best movies book and the first page you opened up to was out of the past with Robert Mitchum yeah. oh my God. and you were like this the stars is were be. aligned it's yeah. like no you need to like get into Investigate. Robert Mitchum what if he's trying to like communicate through you I think <laughs> so man the star I'm telling you just let yeah. him let him let him in a whiskey soaked yeah. Ouija board <laughs> <laughs> very flammable indeed so yeah that's been a lot of like what I've been watching lately if you don't mind me making one suggestion sure if you do end up ever signing up to be a member of new orleans film society one of the benefits is you get free admission to the britannia's classic movies series Mm -hmm. which is every sunday and wednesday at 10 a.m and that's where i see the most noir like it's not something i usually pick out for myself but anytime they have a noir film playing there it's free if you since I'm already a member, and it's just nice to like pop in and watch one of those. They play a lot of old Hitchcock ones in particular. Hell yeah, uh, and it's right. really great. I, I love the aesthetic, the black and white, the very shadowy, tons of like smoking cigarettes constantly, right. just smoke in the air, and the like. The woman that's sort of manipulating the men. A lot of femme fatales. Femme yeah. fatales, yes. yeah, that's the word. And then the dialogue just snaps along. Very snappy, yeah. Very like witty dialogue. Mm-hmm. I just I love it so. To sum up, that's pretty much what I've been watching. It's like Robert Mitchum and Wars. Hell yeah. <laughs> so I we rented a bunch of Criterion Collection movies from the library, and we haven't gotten through all of them yet, but the one that I've enjoyed the most so far is The Executioner, which is uh, a black comedy directed by Luis Garcia Berlanga. And it's about this uh, man who's an undertaker. He has a tryst with this woman whose father is an executioner. And the undertaker's life just progresses kind of increasingly uncontrollably towards um, his final fate of becoming an executioner and taking over his father-in-law's spot. And I thought it was um, electric and very funny. Uh, the execution style is the garrote, which is this iron collar 
that you slowly um, kind of tighten so it strangles the person. Sick. To, yeah. yeah. And, so sick. And the, uh, everybody involved with the execution process is like convincing each other like this is the most humane way of killing. Like in France they had the guillotine and in America they have the electric chair. But this is, you know, the so it just kind of looks at the absurdity of capital punishment um, and like the the forces around you that kind of lead you towards unethical living that you may or may not have any control over. Yeah, it was it was very funny, very spooky. <laughs> yeah, what I really liked about this movie was it's sort of about like how you can be happy in a system that is like unethical and authoritarian mm-hmm. and objectively awful, but you know, it's sort of like that in the U.S. Like, you know your government is doing shady shit and they're bombing other countries, but you have a pretty good standard of living and you're, like, relatively happy. Mm-hmm. And you really have no control over the, like, big picture right. sort of set. And that's, like, the main character in The Executioner is sort of this, like, he's sort of just a goofball. Yeah, he's kind of spineless. And he's spineless, yeah. but he's not bad. Right. Um, he's not, like, a bad person. And so there's like this farcical quality about it where he's not really standing up for anything or taking any control of his life. He's just kind of being strung along from one thing to the next without like taking a stand. Right. Yeah. Even in the very beginning, it's like he's staying with his brother and his brother's child is like always hanging out on his bed. And he says, ah, this is the last time that your child hangs out on my bed and I need to have my private space and he's like not doing anything <laughs> about it like he just he he's all talk and no action in any way and then his life kind of like unfolds in unfortunate ways because of that um, yeah and the the cover is a man in a um, executioner hood holding a little ice cream cone that's melting <laughs> so I mean adorable yeah very cute yeah and there is a scene in this movie where he signs up to be the executioner, but he doesn't really want to execute anyone, but he's just doing it so he can get this apartment, mm-hmm. essentially. And his executions keep getting delayed because if people get pardoned or whatever, and finally it gets to the point where like, he actually has to execute someone, and they literally have to drag him to go execute. And the way this scene is shot, there's like this big open courtyard, and he's like being dragged, kicking and screaming to go execute this person so that he can like still live in this right. apartment. It's just like very um, absurd. Yeah. And like funny, but also like pretty fucked up. That been well yeah. kind of like political absurdism stuff. Yeah. Or? Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's definitely in that wheelhouse. Yeah. And it's funny because the person that's actually being executed is basically just resigned to their fate. So they're both walking to the execution at the same time. And the, the man who will be executed, executed is just kind of ambling along and the executor is like executioner is just running away and like it's like he's the one that's gonna (laughs) and there's also um so once he gets the job he's he's doing everything he can to not have to execute people so that includes (laughs) like when people get into a fight in the road he like goes and stops the fight because he doesn't want anybody to like commit a violent crime that he may have to execute yeah yeah it's very funny i liked it very much can i ask you a question like y'all were recently kind of inspired by our like sight and sound top Mm -hmm. 100 episode to like pick movies from that list to watch 
And you said you're picking like Criterion movies out at the library. Mm-hmm. How are you, what's your like selection process for these like art house movies y'all are kind of catching up on right now? Well, so I've slowly been watching other movies from the Criterion channel that are on the Sight and Sound list. So I did see Rashomon earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of starting with movies that I have always wanted to see but never got around to. Um, I think with the Criterion collection, uh, or I'm sorry, if with the library picks, it's a blend of movies that we wanted to see and then just things that caught our eye are you like browsing like a video store like just looking at the spines at yeah at the exactly. library oh that's really cool yeah and that was the uh i mean that's what drew me to the executioner too it's this like bright pink kind of like cartoony portrait of this yeah, poor man art. yeah exactly so i and i was i said criterion collection and i like the covers so let's let's go yeah and I, I i always struggle with the criterion collection thing because it i sort of feel like maybe a hipster yeah. or something where it's Too just bougie. like, oh, Criterion oh. collection, that's going to be good. <laughs> yes. And that is sort of what I look for when I'm going to the library. It's like, oh, Criterion collection, yes, that's going to be <laughs> a good movie or at least interesting. But the truth is, like, most of the time it is. Right. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It just is. Like, they do a really good job of curating, and I kind of, at this point, trust their taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a good they have a good way of including essays that put things in context to yeah. make them interesting too. Yeah, I, I just like I don't want my taste to become completely beholden to like what criterion right. deems yeah. important, but it's helpful. Yeah. They so. know what they're doing. They do know what they're doing. <laughs> I do like the idea of browsing the library selection like a video store. Like that's yeah, really I love doing that. Yeah. yeah. And just like looking, hey, this looks cool. Bring it home, watch yeah. it. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. Well, Brittany, what have you been watching? So um, <laughs> there are two movies that I do want to talk about that I've been watching. One is actually part of the Criterion Collection, <laughs> and one isn't. <laughs> and the one that I didn't like is the Criterion. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Iconoclast. So the, the Criterion film that I did not like is Paris, Texas. Oh! Interesting. I do like that movie. A lot of people like it. A lot of people love it. And it's just like really high up there with like Americana films and everything. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, I'll go ahead and watch this. And I didn't like it. So the movie is basically, it starts off with this guy who's just kind of drifting through the Southwest desert. And he passes out in a convenience store and then his brother who lives in Los Angeles is called to come and pick him up and his brother travels all the way to the southwest to go and get his um, brother and his brother doesn't speak for a huge portion of like the beginning of the film and as he starts to talk you start to realize that his brother and his wife are raising his son and he has disappeared for like four years and they had no idea where he was and his um, wife also left and they're taking care of the kid. So <laughs> I think my biggest problem with this movie is that the main character is this old man and his wife is this very young girl. And I can't relate or connect with movies where I just see like some greasy old dude who is like ruining the life of this young woman. And I just had no pity for him or no sympathy for him, even though I know I probably should have. It just didn't connect with me, and I think Mm -hmm. that's the main problem I had with it. 
and it's like the I feel like the movie was wanting me to like oh listen to him he's realizing you know his mistakes right and he knows he's he ruined you know so many lives and all this shit and he does make a big sacrifice in the end of the movie that is admirable but I just didn't like it um so I'm assuming y'all have seen it I haven't no have any of y'all seen yeah, it yeah I did see it yeah. but I actually like I don't know there are some movies that I love and I kind of can't understand why other people don't like them but this is not one of those movies like i totally get where you're coming from gotcha i love westerns and i love that like western and like mexico la aesthetic yeah and i really love the scene at the end where they're in the like talk box Oh, together yeah, I thought I yeah I just thought that and then like she's realizing in the kitchen who he is yeah there are just these like really beautiful interesting details that I was really drawn to but he, yeah, yeah I think it's hard to really empathize with the main guy he's but, he's kind of like a frigid person he's, and I do strange. like the actor yeah um, yeah ugh. best known as um the dad in pretty and pink for yeah. me he's the Sarah a, Dean Stanton? yes yeah, yeah. Okay. and he's got a beautiful face <laughs> so there is a really cool scene in the movie that I did like that I think um I don't know it seems very iconic but he's trying to like build this relationship with his son when mm-hmm. he goes back to his brother and his brother's wife's place in Los Angeles and he goes to pick up his son at school and they kind of mm-hmm. just like follow yes! each other on different sides of the yeah. street and they mimic each other's like mm-hmm. walking and the the child actor I thought was a really good yeah he um he's a very like mature kid and is just very insightful and like seems more of like a parent than his father is which I love movies where they have like you know non obnoxious mm-hmm. kids in them so I, I did like the child character but yeah, the movie was okay. Mm-hmm. It was okay. It wasn't like the worst thing in the world, but I, d- I just, I don't like it. I, I think it's one of those movies where, for me, like, I really admired the cinematography. Mm-hmm. The way it looked was amazing. And, like, kind of like Hannah said, it's this in the tradition of, like, a Western and it's right. showing the American landscape yeah. in a really beautiful way. I found it easy to admire it on that level, just like it's pretty to look at. Yeah. I do kind of get what you're saying with like the character driven like the actual plot was pretty sparse yeah so i feel like it's harder to get in with it on that level but just the look of it and the sense of like the open american west is pretty beautiful well the movie that i like that i'm gonna talk (laughs) about offers that and it's a good movie all right (laughs) and it's called um gas food lodging it takes place in New Mexico, and it, it gives you that Southwest vibe yeah. that you get from mm-hmm. Paris, Texas, except this movie follows three women, a single mother who is a waitress, and she's raising her two daughters. Um, one daughter is, you know, she dropped out of school. She's kind of rebellious and kind of trying to find herself and... The other daughter is Ferruzia Balk. Love her. And she's younger. She's like probably 14 or 15, I'm guessing. And she spends her free time at the local cinema watching movies or Mexican movies that star Elvia Rivero. And she's like infatuated with this Mexican actress. And she's like obsessed with these movies. And she's trying to find a a man for her mother because their father has left. They really don't know who they're, you know, have a relationship with him. And 
she thinks that they're never truly going to be a family until like there's a man in the picture and like her mother has like a boyfriend or something like that. I liked this movie so much because it's sort of a, a, a character study of each one of these women where there's not like too much focus on like one versus another. And I want to say that Fruzy Bog like won an independent spirit award for her acting in this movie. It was super good. But yeah, it's just this insane plot where I, I love the storyline of the older sister. Cause at first I'm like, Oh, she was so annoying, obnoxious. And you know, she used a couple of racial slurs in the beginning and very like, I don't want to get my nails dirty. I have a date tonight. I don't want to eat because I don't want my breath to smell like food. <laughs> um, oh, and she's played, I can't pronounce her name, but I, I own sky. I don't know her. And from Say Anything, that's who plays the older sister, Trudy. And yeah, so she's she kind of was obnoxious, but then she develops this relationship with this British geologist who's like mining for rocks. And then she reveals this horrible secret about something that happened to her where you really empathize with her. And um, they fall in love and she gets pregnant for him and she doesn't hear from him again. And has to deal with that struggle. Um, but there's a big plot twist at the end um, with that, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this movie was actually filmed by a female director, Allison Anders. So um, you can really see that female lens a lot throughout this movie. Like there's not a lot of male characters in it. And if they are, they're few and far between and they don't serve too much importance. Even, yeah, at some point in the film, the, the children's father comes back into the picture. But it's not, it doesn't feel major. Like, you know, most movies would really focus on that and like, oh, they're going to reconnect with their dad. And it doesn't really happen that way. And the weird thing, um, connection between this movie and Paris, Texas, other than them both being in the Southwest. Like, first of all, I randomly watched these two movies within the past two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to a podcast episode of Switchblade Sisters, and they interviewed Allison Anders. Oh, cool. And she was saying how she she was on the set of Paris, Texas for some reason. Ah. And she helped Harry Dean Stanton develop his character's role. And he accredited her for helping him so much in his role within Paris, oh, Texas. Wow. And I thought that was like so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was listening to it this morning. Um, and I just thought that was so crazy. But yeah, so there's like some Paris, Texas vibes in this movie. Yeah. But it's a lot nicer. There's some spooky things happening with the podcast. Yeah. Robert Mitchum and so weird. the Southwestern Connect. <laughs> it almost yes. sounds too like they're somewhat in line with um, our next movie of the month to uh, True Stories. Yeah. Which has that like Americana like <laughs> abstraction to it as well. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Very deserty. Yeah. yeah. Very dusty movies. Yeah. You've had a dry February. Mm, yes. Drink a lot of water when you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to dehydrate. Yeah, so those are the, the two like, big movies I think that I got the most out of. Um, good or bad? Good, bad, ugly. Um, but what have you been watching, Brandon? I want to talk about new movies. Movies that came out in 2020. <laughs> Whoa! Looking new back movies. at 2019 and all time and the 2010s and everything else, mm. I'm ready to talk about some new shit. Face the future. Exactly. This is the new shit. Marilyn Manson. I've been to the theater a few times. <laughs> There's a few things that I really liked. One was called Weathering With You. It's an anime oh. romance from the same guy who made Your, Your Name, Name a few years ago, which cool. I was throwing out recommendations for like wild back when that came out. <laughs> um, this one is very similar to that film. It's this like YA romance between these teens and has 
It's like supernatural elements. In this case, this kid falls in love with a girl who can control the weather for brief periods of time. Sweet. Tokyo is storming all the time and like on the verge of flooding. And she can stop the rain locally, like within a block. Mm. Just give this patch of sunshine to like stop the rain for the day. And uh, that becomes like a business for them, like a summertime business. They they get hired Mm. to like... You know, stop the rain for a picnic or for a, mm-hmm. a family event or something so that people get a relief from this rain. It's not as good as your name. I'm going to throw that oh, out first. Okay. But I think it's really interesting because the, the one thing I liked about your name a lot was the way urban environments are sh- like, I was about to say shot. They're, the way they're animated in mm-hmm. the film is almost like a Miyazaki movie animating nature. There's this like majesty, this like natural mm. awe with like the way cities look in it. And I was really into that in your name. And this one goes even further where like nature starts reclaiming the city. Mm-hmm. Like it storms so much and there's these abandoned buildings in Tokyo that just sort of like get left to rot in these like storms. And as it progresses, like the city just starts to become reclaimed by nature, which for a city like Tokyo, which has all these like giant like advertisements mm-hmm. and, you know, video screens and like just bright colors, artificial you know, human-made stuff just flashing mm-hmm. in your face all the time. It was just really interesting to watch this, like, slow reaccumulation of the city into nature as this, like, YA romance played out in the forefront. I don't really watch a lot of anime. I can't really compare this to, like, mm-hmm. the, the whole medium. But um, I just thought it was a really interesting movie. So that reminds me about a book that I read recently about um, forest medicine. So there's this Institute of Forest Medicine in Japan Japan has such a strong relationship with like the woods. I think it's one of the most densely wooded areas in the world and they're all types of forests. Um, but like Tokyo, for instance, is like one of the most densely populated cities. And it's like this abrasive um, conflict between those two environments. And like people in Japan have the forest medicine um, Institute started because, there's this like feeling of malaise among the people and the Japanese seed is really important to get out in the forest. So that, that idea of like the forest reclaiming Tokyo or the natural environment, like that's very interesting. It actually reminded me of a book I read too, a while back called the world without us. Oh yeah. Like a eco thriller, but it's basically, it's taking all these major cities and talking about like if humans just completely, left earth like what would new york turn into Mm -hmm. in like 10 years 20 years 50 years 100 uh and they talk about the natural environment and how the trees would slowly overtake um the buildings and that sort of thing and like what you were describing like really brought me back to reading that book and honestly like it's hard to watch you can't watch this stuff without thinking about climate change too yeah because mm-hmm. basically what we're doing with climate change we're not destroying the planet we don't, we're not that powerful right but we are making it inhospitable for ourselves right and we're not going to exist so at some point nature will like, reclaim these spaces and like mm-hmm. make them natural totally. again and i just thought it was really interesting to watch that play mm-hmm. out in the background like it's not really the text of yeah. the film right. mm-hmm. until it is like yeah. it's like the slow creeping feeling and then the movie really goes big and it's last like 10 15 minutes and mm-hmm. i was like oh wow they like really like hit the gas there <laughs> and yeah i just love a big ending for a film yeah um, it's really great 
I have a bunch of these, so I'm just going to run through them. <laughs> uh, speaking of forests, I also watched Gretel and Hansel. The, uh, Hansel and Gretel adaptation oh, from Oz Perkins, mm-hmm. who usually makes these like slow-moving, like atmospheric horrors. Mm-hmm. When people talk about elevated horror, like that, like mood over like action kind of like vibe, mm-hmm. I feel like Oz Perkins' movies are more dedicated to that than anybody yeah. else's. Like his stuff is all about sound design and like tone and mm-hmm. like. Not a lot of plot. Yeah. Gretel and Hansel is the first movie of his that's ever been in wide release before. And it feels like him trying to make a movie that would appeal to, like, wide audiences for Mm -hmm. horror films. And it's just so fucking funny to me how he's still stuck in this, like, atmospheric art house horror thing and still trying to deliver these, like, jump scares and, like, spooky witch imagery and, like, things we come to expect from, like big horror movies Mm -hmm. and the clash of those two sensibilities are really fun in this we know the story of Hansel and Gretel Mm -hmm. and the movie tries to play it for surprise in that it it changes the basic parts a little bit and the way it does that it starts bringing in other fairy tale logic almost like in in the company wolves kind of way like Mm -hmm. there's like all these like ghouls and like talking wolves and things like sort of in the periphery of Mm -hmm. the uh, story and it really just feels, after a while, like all these like art house horror nerds just dicking around with like camera <laughs> equipment in the woods. Like they're just having fun with like these synthy scores and there's like smoke machines and like Jallo like gel lights and like they're just like throwing every spooky idea they have at the screen in this way that feels like they're trying to appeal to people, but they're too intellectual and too mm-hmm. um, just pretentious to really like cross over. And I don't know. We talked a little bit about this when It Chapter 2 came out. We were like, oh, yeah, finally, you know, mainstream horror is coming back and sort of reclaiming the space all these, like, art house nerds have, like, been, you know, taking over. Uh, and it, this felt like more of a clash between those two cool. things. By the end, the plot makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. <laughs> if you care about story, you will be frustrated by it. But if you really just like weird, spooky imagery and, like, synthy scores and, like, witchcraft kind of stuff, like, I found a lot to just indulge. Like, I honestly... It's a movie that's slow and not very plot-driven, and I was laughing through it just because it felt like very exciting and like mm-hmm. playful. His movies don't usually feel this playful, so I don't know. You're nice. not used to those like atmospheric horror movies having like a sense of humor. And I feel like this one yeah. really did. I love the trailer for it. Yeah, I, I, the witch looks awesome. Yep. So the hair part. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of images like that that just like, really stick with you. Yeah. So that one's great. <laughs> I'm actually like ramping up like more and more like I guess I'm going from my least favorite to my yes, favorite yes I'm, yeah. I'm super excited right now okay, right so yay l- yesterday I went out and I saw Birds of Prey the new uh, DC oh, superhero movie wow I watch a few of these superhero movies every year I don't really like love them usually I'm, I'm usually like entertained by them this is like the first one I've seen in a while that like I would consider for like a best cinema of the year list like what it Whoa. is so fucking good oh my god I was one of the few people who thought Suicide Squad was passably okay. <laughs> I thought it was like a shoot 'em up movie that was dressed up in like Hot Topic garb right. and like it was like a fun action film, although messy. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about that movie was watching Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn interact with Will Smith as I'm just going to guess and say Deadshot. That sounds yeah. accurate. Yeah, I'm not a comic book guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if that helps clarify. And what I really liked was in the edit of that film, they removed at least an hour of Joker footage. And he was horrible, but she was great. So they basically kicked him out of the movie and emphasized her bits with Will Smith. Uh, In this one, she has broken up with the Joker. 
So it's the Harley Quinn character from the 90s Batman animated show, except now she has this like rainbow bright uh, kind of like day glow aesthetic, Mm -hmm. uh, lots of sequins and glitter and just fringe and just really like femmed out. Sweet. She's broken up with him. So this is like a breakup movie, the way you get like a breakup song, you know? And she decides to go big and like make a big show of it. She like announces her relationship status by like making explosions and making sure the whole city knows that she's no longer with this guy. (laughs) And now everybody hates her. They're like, oh, we've been wanting to kill you for years, but the Joker was protecting you. So you have this whole city of like angry men who she's been like (laughs) pissing off for years coming to murder her. Uh, There's this other diamond heist plot that doesn't really matter. I mean, it's a superhero movie, so they have to have some kind of like MacGuffin thing going Mm -hmm. on. But really what's great about this is Margot Robbie having a fucking blast and just beating the shit out of people for two hours (laughs) and it's hyper femme and it's hyper violent. Like Mm -hmm. it is an R rated, like gory, violent movie. Honestly, the like kind of Looney Tunes hard R aesthetic reminded me a lot of Deadpool. I fucking hate Deadpool. I think it's like so brutally unfunny. This like showed me the appeal of that like template. Mm. I'm like, Oh wow, this is actually, you know, you're not Ryan Reynolds. You can actually tell a joke. Uh, And I was just laughing and like enjoying the like brutality of it throughout. Mm -hmm. And I left with like a big smile on my face. It's a great film. Wow. Very surprised to hear that. Yeah. I'm excited though. I now kind of want to see it. I yeah. recommend it. I've thought about seeing it. Yeah. I really, I don't know. I love like superhero girl gangs. So I really yes. wanted to see this movie and I heard a lot of uh, negative critique. Um, so I was kind of like on the fence, but yeah. now I'm excited. Yeah. It's so fun. Yes. I, I, I don't even really know how to put it into better words than that. Like it's just a big, like happy fun fest yeah. I don't know just like really I had feel like I need to bring like sour punch straws into that. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the candy of choice yeah. for this movie it kind of feels like a sugar rush in that way yeah. yes okay last one I promise <laughs> uh, this is Richard Stanley's comeback to filmmaking it's called Color Out of Space yeah uh, Richard Stanley's disappeared for like 20 years or so because he is a very weird person <laughs> he like <laughs> believes in witchcraft and like Fuck demonic yeah. possession he's like a true believer in this like occultist kind of stuff um, which got him kicked off the set of the island of Dr. Moreau because he cannot hold a normal conversation with financiers <laughs> for like 10 minutes which there, there's a great uh, documentary yeah I think it's called Lost Soul uh-huh. it's very good so he's been like in retreat for the past two decades and he's come back with this sort of Mandy inspired adaptation of The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. It's a short story. And this does not feel like Richard Stanley's 90s movies. It feels like even before that. Like, it feels like 80s Stuart Gordon Lovecraft adaptations, like uh, Reanimator or The Beyond, or even like the Cronenberg stuff from that era, like Mm -hmm. Videodrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of like purple neon lighting, lots of like synthy scores. The only wow. modern aspect, really, is that Nicolas Cage is doing his thing all over this movie. <laughs> like, yes. the premise of the film is this uh, meteor crashes on this alpaca farm that Nicolas Cage lives <laughs> on with his family. Love alpacas. Oh, so and this cute. impossible cosmic color comes out of the uh, meteor. It's a color no one's ever seen before. It's fucking purple. But right. no, you can't represent it on screen. But uh, no one's ever seen it before. And the more they dwell on it, the more they stare at it, the more insane they grow. So it's perfect Nick Cage fodder. Like, he just goes more and more crazy as Mm -hmm. the movie goes on and gives you his whole, like, overacting highlight reel. Uh, I've heard a lot of people complain about that because he's kind of like a meme now. 
It's terrifying, though. Like, that's the one thing I really want to get across about this movie. It's a blast. It's very 80s nostalgic. But it is so fucking creepy and scary. Ooh. Oh, my God. The horror body melting I kind of stuff. I love that shit. Mm-hmm. It's very practical effects in, like, the old school way. They didn't do the CGI cop-out with it. And it's very upsetting. <laughs> and the horror that comes out of the meteor crash has this very real dramatic anchor to it. Because it's all within this family who is basically they're cancer survivors. Like the mother had breast cancer and they're living on this farm as like her recovery. Mm -hmm. And as things spread and mutate out of the meteor, it just feels like cancer is like eating this Mm -hmm. family alive. And it's just so fucking upsetting. Yeah. But it's fun because Nick Cage is like yelling about alpacas and like gnawing on vegetables angrily. And I don't know. (laughs) It's just like a really weird film. So how does one watch this now? It was at the Broad. It might still be right now. And it will be on video on demand on February 28th. Uh, oh, so that's, oh, that's soon. soon. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'm totally going to watch this. Yes. I recommend seeing it at the theater, too, because yes. just the lights and sounds are like very overwhelming in that environment. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. It's the best way to see it. Especially because you said like the visuals are very Mandy-ish, and yeah. it's so hard to like explain how fabulous Mandy is without like really seeing it in theaters. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I need to see this in theaters. And yeah. I think they're both produced by Spectre Vision, which is uh, oh, Elijah yeah. Wood's uh, production company. So they have like a cool. similar kind of vibe. Yes. Uh, and Tommy Chong is in it. So wow. that's, that's a fun treat. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for letting me filibuster for a minute there. Felt that, really good. That was great. Okay. <laughs> I'm very excited. And we are going to continue talking about movies that we've seen for the first time in theaters this year. Because next up, we're going to talk about Celine Sciamma. Yay! There is no female imaginary because there has not been that many female artists so that we can say there's this female imaginary but women have been imagined by men so they're in charge of our images um still still of course we can see well they're the film critics they're i mean they're they're making speech and they're they're talking about the operas when they're done usually for a movie the minute we have someone select a movie that no one else has seen yet and we Sort of build an episode around it. Uh, Hannah, for the first time, you're picking Yay! like our main topic. Yeah, my my debut as a swamp true swamp flicks podcaster. It's very exciting. What did you make us watch? I made everyone watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is one of the movies that I was most excited about last year that I did not get to see. Uh, it's set in the 1770s in France. There is an artist named Marianne. She's a very talented painter. She goes to this uh, isolated area in the French countryside to paint a portrait of this uh, woman named Eloise, whose sister has committed suicide. Eloise is now going to take the place of her sister in a marriage to a a very wealthy Milanese man. Um, So to me, the, the portrait is almost like like your picture in a Tinder profile, like they're going to send this um, portrait to the Milanese man. And if he likes it, then uh, they'll get married. So Eloise is this like kind of fiery girl. She does not want to get married. And a man was hired to paint her portrait earlier and she refused to sit for him. So Marianne has to paint 
um, Eloise's portrait in secret. She's there under the guise of um, just being a companion for Eloise. So they slowly start to fall in love through their um, through their interactions. They go on these long walks by the roaring ocean, and they have just like these small chats about their lives. Eventually, uh, Marianne reveals to Eloise that she has been painting her portrait, and um, Eloise uh, agrees to pose for Marianne. Um, and then their love just kind of blossoms in this really close relationship with the two of them and then um, their housekeeper. They have this kind of like beautiful period of six days where they're playing cards together and cooking and and just enjoying um, the French countryside. And then eventually um, Marianne's time is up. Their romance has to end and she uh, goes back to her old life. Um, I thought it was a really beautiful movie and I wanted to watch this for like the Valentine's Day weekend because I uh, really love queer love stories, especially queer love stories that don't end in like total catastrophe or aren't like based around like total deception. This just felt like a pretty organic, kind of, I mean, it was a tragic love story, but um, there, there wasn't really any deceit. It was just this, like this sweet moment between these two women um, that inevitably has to end. Um, yeah, so that's the basic basic synopsis. <laughs> I thought it was lovely too. Watching her films the last few days, like her cinematography is absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Spe- like I feel like this is the best as far as like the look of the film. Mm-hmm. I thought it was remarkable, and I think also what I loved most about Portrait of a Lady on Fire is like those small moments of eroticism Mm -hmm. that she captures so well. And we kind of touched on this a few episodes back with in the mood for love, where it's like these tender glances or these like little touches Mm -hmm. or like hugging someone and smelling them. She captures those moments so well. And I feel like that's what drives the eroticism Mm -hmm. of this film. And I'm going to come back to this a lot because watching her films i i keep noticing that there is like like eroticism is like so heavy with all yeah. of her films and like this one was so tender and loving and subtle and there were a few moments towards the end where i thought it actually like reached some sort of a climax emotionally i will say that we all saw this in the theater together and at the climactic scene at the end, the lights came. There was like a technical <laughs> uh, malfunction and it was such a bummer because that last scene is absolutely breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't spoil that epilogue because it really like delivers on a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. The movies like build up to. But it builds up to this like moment, this character moment. Um, that's like, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Yeah. I really, I really, really liked it. And that that setup is really brilliant, too, where, like, she is studying this person and, like, learning the curves of her face and, like, really paying attention to her because she's supposed to be painting her portrait in private. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's these scenes where she, like, closes her eyes and, like, kind of remembers, like, the curve of her neck or, like, the nape of her nose. And it's, like, Mm -hmm. like, that's already erotically charged. And then you have this other person who's noticing that they're being observed this intently and they have to, like, read these, like signals and like why are you looking at me this way it must be puppy love you know and Mm -hmm. like then they have to decide how much of this is mutual like 
I don't know. There's this like really interesting, quietly played push and pull between the two of them. And then when they both like speak their feelings and like it's out in the open, it's almost like they even say in the movie, like we wasted so much time. Yeah. Like everything's so delayed and so quiet. And then they rush to fulfill this like big emotion they've been feeling the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And it's like a really great setup in that way. So once they once the feelings start flooding, they all mean so much and everything just feels so big. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about when you were saying that all of Celine Sciamma's movies are like erotically charged. It's interesting that most of her protagonists are children. Some of them are pubescent, but like for the most part they're like very young kids. Mm-hmm. And it was a really big shift in this one to have to adult women participating in this eroticism. It's very different from her other stuff. I was thinking about that a lot during this movie just because I'm used to her protagonist being younger. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's just kind of interesting because they are kind of children just because of the way women used to be treated. Like, especially the... You know, wealthier woman who's like basically been raised in a nunnery and like sheltered from the world. She has to ask this like painter for like these glimpses of what real life is like Mm because she's been completely imprisoned away from it. So in that way, her naivete kind of like fits into the the like juvenile worldview of everybody else just through her circumstances. Right. So I I don't know. I feel like it does kind of fit in her larger catalog. I don't know if that registered with you or at all. No, definitely. It's like. They all feel like coming-of-age stories. And even though she's an adult, it's like she hasn't come of age yet. Like, she doesn't know what love is. She only knows um, music inside the monastery. Like, she's very much, like, not experienced in the breadth of life. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that Skiyama is fixated upon, like, the moment or the, like, the short period of time when someone kind of develops... Um, emotionally and sexually into like a fully fledged being and outside of this movie it tends to be that 10 to 13 year old range where Mm -hmm. gender is kind of fluid and you're really just trying to figure shit out and your identity yeah and this one is sort of an outlier where it feels like it is about that but it's like full-grown women Mm -hmm. but some of the other movies we're going to talk about it's like more obviously pubescent but i feel like she's kind of been robbed of the development that would normally come with her age like she honestly doesn't know any more about herself or about sex or about anything than the like 10 year olds in the like more modern stories Mm -hmm. like she's almost been like delayed in her development until she becomes useful as like a financial tool for her family to make money and like freedom out of her her marriage Mm -hmm. Uh, the nunnery has sort of like stopped her from developing after a certain point yeah yeah like all she really has to hold on to is this kind of anger that her circumstances are totally out of her control and that even that she is like taking on the repressive fate that her sister kind of evaded through what you know what's alluded to as suicide all that inhabits her is the lack of what she could have had i do think something interesting too you brought up earlier like how in the monastery she only knew music through like a religious context Mm. and you know through this like opportunity to marry opportunity is kind of like a loaded word there because it's not a great thing that's happening to her but um, she does hear more like music from the outside first through Marianne and then mm-hmm. later through other sources. 
I do want to talk about like music in Celine Scamma's yes! movies. Yeah. Because it's it's masterful, honestly. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the big emotions of music like rolling you over like a truck, which yeah. is like something you really feel more when you're young. Like I wish I could have that euphoric music right. relationship I used to have. It's very rare for me now. But she represents that on screen where the the first movie I ever saw from her was Girlhood, and that's the one we'd cover for the podcast. Right, and that's the one that I would bring up as like the quintessential example. Because, yeah, that scene in Girlhood in the hotel room. They dance to Rihanna's Rihanna Diamonds. Diamonds is honestly like one of my favorite scenes of the decade. <laughs> if not of all, like it is a beautiful scene. And it's like, we're not going to talk about that film at length. But that scene sort of is like her at her best. Mm-hmm. I feel I like as a director. If I think about that scene for more than like 30 seconds, I start crying. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why. Like nothing bad happens in it. Mm-hmm. Nothing big plot-wise really happens in it. But there's this like just swelling feeling yeah. that really gets to you. Um, in this movie, in Portrait, what's interesting about that is that the whole movie is scoreless. It's very quiet. And most of what you hear on the soundtrack is like, if you're inside, it's fireplaces crackling. crackling and if you're outside it's waves crashing because most of the movie takes place close to the shore mm-hmm. and then there's these like two really big scenes maybe three where music takes over the soundtrack and it hits you like a fucking tidal wave yeah. like you're just crushed under the emotions of it um and the movie even ends on one of those uh and that's like one of the big effects you get is like music sort of just, like taking over your emotions and i i just think that's like such a smart, patient use of the soundtrack. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, this is one of the things like stuck out to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot, I mean, I think music is used so often as an emotional crutch in movies. It's like a, a cue. I mean, and I guess it is used in that way, he, not as a crutch, but as a cue. But it's like, it never feels cloying. Like it feels like a totally um, authentic emotional experience. And there is a big scene related with a classical piece but halfway through the movie which i think it's the turning point of the movie there's this collective of herbalists and they start chanting and singing in this like it feels (laughs) yeah it's beautiful hand claps Yeah. yeah and then they're like whispering and kind of murmuring and throughout the first half of the movie it's kind of like preoccupied with women as an economic tool and women as being like traded to men and how you know Eloise's mother is traded in the same way like she's talking about how she came to her husband's manor and the her portrait was waiting for her and that that's kind of like all that she's known so then there's this moment of kind of collective art and joy between this group of women and it's such a a liberating feeling like this is what these women could be living and then it, you know that moment passes it you know that scene kind of reminded me of the scene in midsummer where the women are kind of all consoling yeah her mm-hmm. and like just that effect of like women kind of breathing the same breath mm-hmm. and like we're all yeah. in this together is very powerful also like talking about the score i th- what I've really liked this trend in films now, it's like either want the score to be like very sparse. And then when the music does come in, it's so much more powerful or the score is like constant and mm-hmm. completely overwhelming. Like Uncut Gems right. is an example where it's just like pounding in your face and mm-hmm. you can't escape it. And I feel like 
yeah, she does a good job with like being very patient, like you said, with the score. And when the music does come in, man, it, like it's a wallop. Right. Like you really feel it. It's not just like a constant thing kind of in the background. Yeah. And I think in both of the cases that you're talking about, the music choice is totally intentional and it's meant to elicit a particular emotional state and a specific emotional state as opposed to like something happy is happening. So we need to like fill the these two scenes with happy music. You know, it's like if the music feels totally woven in with the fabric of the scene. And I got to say, I realized like watching these movies that I might like this might be an intellectual shortcoming of mine where like I kind of need score in movies because mm-hmm. like in this yeah. film, it's so quiet. Like a lot of scenes are even just like charcoal scraping on canvas is like all you hear as she's like sketching out the borders of this portrait. And my mind just kind of wanders. Like I mm-hmm. kind of need the music as like centering anchor for my attention because <laughs> <laughs> The two movies that really stood out to me as like my favorites from her are her debut film and Girlhood, mm-hmm. which are very similar films, I think. And I think they have the most score out of any of the movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that is more my problem than the movie's problems. And as my mind was wandering during Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is very like well-crafted, beautiful film, I was just thinking a lot about like, well, what makes this one like the one that everyone is shining mm-hmm. out as like her like pinnacle as an artist and if there was a score like keeping my attention on the film at all times i don't know that i would have drifted in that way i think i would have like stayed in the emotions of it well you know what's interesting about that is like i hear you but we'll talk about later but tomboy was my favorite of the films we're going to talk about interesting and that didn't have any score at all that was my problem with tomboy it didn't have a single like there was one scene and it was it was very similar to girlhood there's one scene where they're dancing together oh there is yeah Yeah. so it's again like an emotionally like like a very joyful moment but other than that i don't know nothing yeah Yeah. there's like no score at all and yeah you're right there's that one scene but that's sort of what i loved about that film which we'll talk about soon is like that one felt so naturalistic and like there was no outside Mm -hmm. it was just like us with the characters in their space so we will sor- circle back to Portrait, but I do want to move on to Tomboy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do want to start with that scene, that dance party with just the two main children in the bedroom. That is very much something that is in that girlhood diamond yeah, scene. Exactly. Of course. Um, yeah. It's also very much in the dance club scene in the discotheque mm-hmm. in her yep. original right. film. And I would almost tie that in to the scene we were just talking about in portrait that mm-hmm. like fire that fire yeah. place like there's like this that's a common theme in right. like yeah. every single thing she does and we've only seen one other movie that she wrote but didn't direct it and it was called um my life is a zucchini it's this oh. like mm-hmm. stop motion film um and there's a disco french dance mm-hmm. party in that film with the, the yeah. children and the thing so yeah it's a it's a device she uses but it works every single every time every single yeah. time and each one of those scenes has a different texture yeah, to it definitely yeah. they don't feel like the same note over and over again they all mean something different to me. Right. So her movie before Portrait of Lady on Fire was Girlhood, mm-hmm. and that was in 2014. We're going to go one before that, because we've already covered that movie in this podcast um, a few years ago, and maybe I'll include that in the notes too, along with Mr. Hot Dog Boys. Uh, <laughs> so Girlhood one. is a masterpiece, and like yeah. everyone should seek it out. Yeah. It's great. And I do want to talk about that a little more in depth when we get back to her debut, because mm-hmm. I feel like those are linked they like, are. directly. So 
before Girlhood, her next movie down the line was Tomboy. And you said that was your favorite out of what we watched. So what, what is, just tell me what Tomboy is in a general sense. It's a very simple story. It's a girl, it's a summer in France and she's presenting as a boy. Now th- there's some, I guess, question like, is it, is she just a tomboy or is she actually transgendered? I don't know. I'm not going to answer those I don't think questions. there is an answer to that question. There isn't. And, and that's what I love about the movie. And I'll, I'll get to that. But it's just his or her like self-discovery. And I, I can't really do a good job of explaining it plot-wise because it's very much just... Well, it's almost like the Florida Project, which we talked about recently, where right. it's just like kids in this like one apartment complex... Hanging out. At play. Yeah. But I think I can tell you why I love this movie. Sure. Is is because like you said it doesn't give you those answers about like oh what does this actually mean like where will this child be in the future? It's more just a very honest like humanistic beautiful depiction of like childhood and discovery and everyone in the film is so loving it has such beautiful like parents even though the mom does some fucked up shit towards the end mm-hmm. group but like even the kids are very loving and it's not it's not mean in it it's just like a beautiful nice movie about someone like discovering who they are and like coming into their own and their gender and trying to like figure it out and i i think it's interesting that there are so many ways that you can develop and kind of question your identity and gender is one that is like very hard for people to question without societal pushback. It's like if Laura, who identifies as Mikkel to this new group of friends that she's met in the new apartment complex, was just allowed to say, you know, I was born a girl, but I identify as Mikkel. And like, I feel like the kids would actually not have as much of a problem with it if there wasn't already this structure of like um, normative gender constructs. And you can see that too with uh, Mikkel's little sister who takes um, Mikkel's new identity in stride. Like she's actually very intelligent about it. This uh, Mikkel's friend Lisa comes over and Lisa's asking um, Mikkel's little sister to see if Mikkel is there and the little sister kind of gets immediately that Lisa is talking about her sister Lore and instead of you know giving away Mikkel's secret she says oh Mikkel's not here right now you know you can come back later and you know it doesn't change who Lore is to her so and there's that later scene with the dinner where she says that she met her new friend Mikkel today yeah Yeah. exactly and then they just very sweet I mean and that but that is like the main conflict of the movie is like when is Mikkel going to be discovered right as not who yeah she presents to be and there's a lot of tension in that too there's like a lot of scenes where you know they're play fighting on like they're by the you know the lake and they're in their swim trunks Mm -hmm. and you know, like something bad is going to ha- something like traumatic is going to happen. It's just a question of when, mm-hmm. and that tension is really what like kept me very engaged. And that's the thing that sort of justifies the mother's behavior towards the end. She's like, "I'm not heartbroken about who you are, right. but like you can't continue to deceive right. other kids this way. Like it's gonna come out eventually, and we the longer we let it 
snowball, well, the right, harder the, it's going to be. Especially yeah. when you find out, like, you know, they're going to be back in school mm-hmm. in a couple weeks. Like, It so, still feels like a betrayal. I don't want to, like, downplay how, like, right. harsh that feels. But. Well, and I don't think the mother handled it perfectly, no. but she's in a bad spot. Emotional. Mean, yeah, yeah, like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. And it's these, like, particular demarcations of gender that make it so difficult. Like, the, there would be no way for the mother to, for instance, go to the school and say, uh, my daughter is identifying as Mikhail. Can sh- can y'all just, like, get on board with this? Like, it can just never happen. So this unpunctured identity can only really exist for this one summer. And honestly, that's how I took the movie. Almost like... I wasn't really in Mikkel's head the whole time. Mm-hmm. I was more looking at it as this like study of how like children are essentially genderless. Yeah. And we like yeah. ascribe all these like traits to them mm-hmm. based on their genitals and right. like build these like kind of cruelly limiting borders, like boundaries yeah. and like what they can do with their identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously this kid doesn't fit into that box and right. like they want to step outside of it or at least try to and see what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, like, children's psychology has, like, a really interesting lens for, like, viewing human behavior because we don't change that much as we get older. Right. We're, we're better at, like, hiding bullshit, but, like, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. the same behavior patterns. They're just, like, sort of, like, more bare. Mm-hmm. And I found the movie more interesting in that way. Like, it was very observant about, like, how gender is reinforced right. and, like, established and, like, societally enacted mm-hmm. um there's a scene where the two sisters siblings are in a bathtub together and the younger sister is singing this like schoolyard song about how mm-hmm. girls love boys who play rock and roll yeah. and like one day they'll marry such and such a man and it's like wow that kid is like even younger than this kid and they already have these like gender roles like, right. sort of, like rattling around in their head mm-hmm. they don't really need that like it's right. really limiting yeah yeah but the sister felt like she is fully like identifies as like a woman like there's no questioning in her mind mm-hmm. you know what i mean like and that was i love the contrast between yeah, the definitely. two it's like but she's still like even though she is like kind of very sternly like a female woman mm-hmm. like she still looks out for her sister right you know and that again like that's the thing i loved about this movie was how sweet everyone really was like it could have been a scenario where this like transgender kid has like these really shitty parents that don't understand. And that's not the case. Like her sister is awesome. Her dad is wonderful and mm-hmm. loving her mom. Like, yeah, a little misguided maybe, but like it's a very loving family. And even the kids are like, and honestly that might change if the movie were made again today, like right. 2011 and 2020, like, the conversations around what gender is and how it's like expressed is very different than it was even nine years ago. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think there are a lot of parents now, I mean, especially compared to that time that are raising their children um, kind of genderlessly. And there's more parents on the reactionary side. They're like, care more about those boundaries than they ever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Even the word tomboy, I feel like is not a word we would use very often now. Right. It feels like a different time frame yeah well and i i love that in the very first like title sequence it's like tomboy and then it's the shifting of the blue and the Mm -hmm. pink inside of tomboy it's like even that phrase like what does that even really mean there's one thing i don't like about the way this movie starts though what's that so we meet mikhail and he 
introduces himself as such to this like other girl mm-hmm. in the like uh, apartment complex area. Lisa. Lisa. Yeah. Which we need to talk about that because we haven't touched on that whole relationship yet. Yeah, which is one of the most interesting aspects yeah. of the film. Yeah, but as the story goes on for the first like fifteen or twenty minutes, we only know them as Mikkel, mm-hmm. and then they have a bath with their sister, and then they stand up and they're nude, and that's the yeah. first time we see that they don't have a penis, and that felt like a weird reveal to me. Like, oh, you thought this uh-huh. was a boy the whole time, <laughs> like. Because we don't yeah. hear right. their name as Lori or Laura yeah. until that time. And it almost felt like yeah. a delayed like surprise. And I, right. that didn't sit well with me, really. Yeah, I just didn't really get the point of like obscuring that. That felt like an old, kind of old-fashioned... It almost felt like, this, like you can project whatever you want onto the story. Like, it could be a girl posing or guy. Like The only in- implication you get is the title. Like, everything else is... Right. Yeah, I, did, I honestly, like... The only thing that bothered me about that scene is like I don't know how I feel about showing a child's genitals on a film. Period. Yeah, In, I mean, period. Like I don't know. American and European experiences with nudity are very different. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's probably my own thing. But I was just like, oh, all right, there we go. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that w- that was kind of a yeah. It feels like a little bit of a bait and switch. Like it's supposed to be this. Yeah, like a shocking surprise. moment. Yeah. Another thing that I, this is like a small detail, but so we watched the movie and then I read the like Amazon Prime description of the movie and like the basic synopsis. And it says that they're like due to a misunderstanding, Mikkel's friends believe that she's a boy and that's not how I read the movie at all. No, not at all. Yeah, I read it as like Mikkel intentionally identifying as a boy. So I thought that was a really strange choice yeah and the only ambiguity there for me is at the end when they replay their first meeting they try it over again and they introduce themselves as laurie this time yeah uh that's the only like ambiguity there like well were they doing that as a way to capitulate right people want them to be seen or Mm -hmm. is it them uh actually trying it again without any layer of quote unquote deception yeah. I don't know well, that that scene is up for debate and kind of puts the whole movie's like interpretation of their identity up for debate I mean mm-hmm. their relationship with Lisa and Mikkel I thought was very interesting because I had read something on IndieWire it was like this movie was listed as like the number three lesbian love story like love film of all time yeah. and like I was thinking about that and like that's a weird interpretation of the like I, I when I, I'm keep going in my head, like was that a lesbian love story? Like, did Lisa know that Mikkel was like, you know what I mean? There's like, so many ways to take that. Like, one way is that children are genderless, and it doesn't matter which right. one was which. Right. One way to take it is within Celine Sciamma's larger catalog, everything she does is through an assigned female at birth, mm-hmm. same sex coupling True. lens. Yeah, yeah. Another way to take it is that. Just the word tomboy in the title colors how we experience it. And then if you take that for its word, that is a lesbian coupling. If that mm-hmm. is an intrusion on this kid, then, I mean, all bets are off. We don't really know what's going on in their head. It's Like you said right. earlier, it's very naturalistic, so we don't get like the inside of their brain. Mm-hmm. We Do only you, like observe. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of shots of Lisa in this movie where I kind of saw the wheels turning, where she knew, I thought. But then when the actual reveal happens, she's like kind of 
upset about it or whatever. But it's a deception thing. Yeah. 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 But I got the sense of like Lisa knew fairly early on and that maybe she was just okay with I don't it? know. I don't that, know. I don't know that she explicitly knew. I mean, she said like. But there's all those times. shots of like her looking out at Mikkel and like again, you can kind of see. I mean, the thought process. And again, going on. It, it's hard to say, but I th- I interpreted that as like her attraction to him and like developing these feelings. But I also I think it's pretty clear that Lisa does not see Mikkel as being the same as the other boys. Like, there is a distinct difference. I don't know if she can place that exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then there's that moment where she's painting Mikkel's face, and she says, oh, wow, you really, you look great as a girl. So mm-hmm. I, I think she gets the sense that there's, like, kind of, she's closer to her on the spectrum of gender, but not necessarily that this person is actually a little girl posing as a little boy. Well, that that's why it was so heartbreaking in that scene where they have the reveal and then the other kids are like, we need to see your yeah. genitals to know what you are. And then they're like, oh, you kissed a girl. Like, that's disgusting. Right. Isn't it? And she's like, yeah, it's... And then she dis- spits in his face. Disgusting. Yeah. And, spit- and like, man, that, that got to me. I thought but that was... But that's not her... That's not how she really... That's not how she feels. That's how she's being prompted to feel by other mm-hmm. people totally. and that's where i took that's like the kind of lens i watched the whole movie from right like, i didn't take this like to hear it called like the greatest lesbian story of whatever like i i get that there's not a lot of representation of that right. kind of dynamic but it's not like portrait of a lady on fire where there's this whole internal mm-hmm. narrative like it's very external to me and very like child psychology right which is interesting and i i, I think that's where this is not. This is like probably my least favorite Selene Gamma movie. Really? Yeah. Oh. I mean, that's <laughs> right, right. Like, what am I complaining like, about? Yeah, right. it's my least favorite piece of candy. Like, these are all great. Yeah. It's just it felt very slight to me compared mm-hmm. to how other works. And I watched the uh, an interview with her on the disc that I got from the library uh, on the set of the movie, and she was like, basically, I made this movie Water Lilies. Uh, her debut that got into can and I got all this like pressure on me mm-hmm. where like people loved my debut movie. What am I going to do next? Yeah. And she said that she wrote a movie that she could write in three weeks, cast in two weeks and then make in a few weeks. Like it was like a movie that she could get out of the way so that mm-hmm. she could just get her sophomore effort over. Right. With and like, like relieve that pressure. Yeah. The burden was taken care of. And the movie feels and I felt this way before I watched that interview, but kind of like solidified it. Like it feels slight to me in that way. Mm-hmm. It is this like small slice it's of small, life. Yeah. But I like, see, I think that's what I actually liked about it was how small and personal it felt. And again, like very natural and real and not a lot of like external music. It's just these loving characters trying to figure this stuff out. But I don't really feel like I got in their heads as they were figuring it out. Like, I feel like I was watching the like, really? I thought Mikkel's, performance was um very good for very sure. good yeah. like i while i was watching her like i was in her head like and when she's like watching the boys play mm-hmm. and like oh do i can i take my shirt off or do i need to put this yeah, what thing are the in boundaries my pants? Here, like yeah. what right. are the bound like i was totally engaged yeah. with that it's the other kids i think that are pulling me out though like the other kids 
a just aren't as good of an actor as yeah, the main kid. Definitely. Fair enough. And yeah. then the especially the little sister. My God, she's just like so sweet, gives me a cavity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The other kids, the way that they're interacting on the playground, like we'll we'll see like a whole scene of just them playing soccer shirtless for like five minutes, mm-hmm. and it's very naturalistic and very. I keep bringing up the Florida Project for some reason. Maybe it's because we just talked about it. It is. No, it's like that. But yeah, there's just like a very like observant, like this is how children play. This is how children express these things that we tell them Mm -hmm. is like life. And like, I I just, I saw this sort of like abstracted, like child psychology lens in the film. Yeah. I think the most interesting parts to me were definitely like Mikkel's private moments of discovery. Like I, I love the scene where he, after he, uh, Lisa invites him to go to the the lake, and Mikkel's like, "How am I gonna do this? Like, this is impossible." <laughs> so he has the swimsuit. Uh, he cuts it off so that he has like these little trunks, and then he tries it on, and it's like obvious that he doesn't have a penis. So then he makes one out of play doh for himself. Like that process was really interesting to me. It's like because I don't. It's like people, the kids know kind of what they're supposed to look like, and maybe they don't necessarily know exactly why, but he's just like like filling out this outline of what a boy looks like and what he has to do to kind of pass to everybody else. Um, and th- those like private moments in the mirror or like modeling the little toy penis, I thought were like very interesting. And I, I also love movies about the like burgeoning sexuality of children even though they make me a little uncomfortable because like sexuality totally develops like when you're like super like fifth grade fourth grade that's where all fetishes come from is when you're like (laughs) that age i'm not even joking like right exactly (laughs) so i i mean i think like those summers of sexual discovery are like very special and i i liked having the opportunity to watch this person kind of experiment without being like harshly punished in the end. And I think in that respect, Mikkel's interactions with his dad mm-hmm. are very like impactful. They're yeah. very fleeting. They don't happen very often, but when the two of them are like interacting this like mm-hmm. intimate moment, like there's something about the way he idolizes his dad that mm-hmm. like really like explains a lot of what we're watching in other scenes when they're interacting with other people and like yeah. kind of and, exemplifying the dad's behavior. And again, I love, I love a movie where you just have a good dad. Yeah. yeah. A, like even a dad that like shares a beer yeah. with their kid, like you can see the love in those scenes. Like I get what you're saying. Like this did feel like kind of an outlier mm-hmm. and different than a lot of the other films I've seen from her. But like, that's sort of why I liked it. I would almost say Portrait is the outlier to me. This fits in with the other three, more really? so than Portrait. Well, let's go to okay, Water yeah. Lilies, which was her debut. And this kind of feels like the trial run for girlhood to me. Like, it feels like a very similar setup. In girlhood and in this one, you have this, like, younger character who walks in and looks at this, like, group of already established girls and is just sort of, like, fixated on that. And mm-hmm. it was like, I want to be part of that club. In girlhood, she joins a girl gang, which maybe is not the safest uh, path in life. Yeah. Um, the one in Water Lilies is a little safer because she joins a synchronized swimming team, <laughs> right. which is like a little like uh, less risky. Mm-hmm. So this stars Adele Hanel. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it is the star of A Portrait of Lady yeah. on Fire as well. Oh. 
She's so beautiful. And it's she's a child in this film. And, yeah. you know, it, it almost feels like Celine Sciamma's career has come full circle just, like, starring this woman uh, in these, like, two different periods in her life. Mm-hmm. Is she a child in this film? She's got to be, like, 15 or 14. I don't know. Well, anyway, that's one thing that kind of threw me off with this movie was honestly the, like, age, age difference. difference. Yeah. yeah. It's, it seemed like a 11-year-old hooking up with, like, a 15, 16-year-old. But anyway. And that's kind of baked into the DNA of it, and I think it's very similar to Tomboy, where you have this, like, main character who's not that girl. I don't know this actor's name off the top of my head, which is a young kid, and she's fixated on this girl's swimming team, and particularly the, like, badass team captain. Yeah. Who has a reputation unfairly among the other girls for being like the team slut. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I want to be with her, or I want to be her, or I want to eat her skin, or yeah. something. Like, <laughs> there's this like intense fixation on yeah. this person. It's like, I need to just be in their life all the time. Mm-hmm. She has this other friend who's a little dumpier, who's like her age, really. Yeah. And maybe developing a little faster than her. So she's like frustrated with this like friend who's already around and wants to be with this like cool girl mm-hmm. who's like the bad chick in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's on this synchronized swimming team, which is basically the way it's represented here, like almost like child beauty pageant, but yeah. with like waterproof makeup. Yeah. Like they're just like kind of beautifully synchronized dancing in the water. I like that device a lot. I don't know how y'all felt about that. That was actually my favorite shot of this whole movie was this like underwater shot yes. mm-hmm. of their like legs moving this, like all the synchronized swimming stuff. I loved. Well, that meant a lot to me. Cause like, the first time we see them, they're very poised. I'm uh-huh. not, not the little, little kids. They are like barely not drowning, <laughs> but like the teen girls are like very poised above mm-hmm. water and like beautifully stayed. And that's what she's attracted to. Like, right. Oh, you have this power in the water and you're like really like, presenting yourself mm-hmm. in this like fascinating, beautiful way. And then later we see her diving under the water and then with all that calm on the surface, yeah. under the water, it's like frog legs kicking frantically to keep themselves in place. And I, yeah. I thought that was a really interesting visual detail. Yeah. And I think that that's representative of the the whole movie, too. This, like, facade of composure and then all of these kind of roiling feelings underneath this confusion and, and trying to, like, present yourself as the kind of woman you want to be. And she doesn't know what she wants. She's just mm-hmm. as lost as Mikhail and doesn't even really know why she's so attracted to this older girl, really. Mm-hmm. It seems like she wants a kiss from her. It's like their <laughs> biggest goal. A kiss, kiss. Which is like hard for her to earn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like most of the movie is like her sort of being the wingman for this girl as she goes out on dates with boys and like older and older men as the movie goes along. And, you know, that gets really uncomfortable. We're talking about like childhood sexuality. Uh, earlier like with this prepubescent girl who is fixated on this like teenager who's like slightly above her age range Mm -hmm. who in turn is with these older men who's even older than her Mm -hmm. and it's this like really uncomfortable soup of just like horny emotions this is my favorite movie we watched today for this episode Uh, i think it feels like a trial run for girlhood Mm -hmm. i would say that it does a lot of the same things but girlhood reaches higher highs uh, the only difference for me is Girlhood kind of falls apart in its last like 20 minutes. Like it comes down a little weak. Uh, this one I feel is very structurally solid. This like unrequited relationship where she's doing these acts of service for this like older girl who may or may not reciprocate her feelings in some way. She at least knows that she's safe and is like willing to like use her. Yeah. Uh, and we watch 
to see how much this younger character is willing to be used before she like calls it quits. It's like, yeah. I'm not going to let you play with my emotions anymore because I've already gotten out of you what I'm going to get out of this relationship, um, which basically amounts to a very chaste kiss. Yeah. Uh, so the stakes are relatively low, except for in a few instances where older men creep into the frame. Which is kind of rare because I feel like a lot of these movies we watch, like men are not really men are on the right. periphery. Yeah. Which good, I don't really care. Yeah. That's fine. And the men in this movie are like presented as a bunch of horrible ding dongs. They're <laughs> literally wearing like underwear on their head for <laughs> right. like half the movie. <laughs> but I, I love that scene though. Like I love that scene. Yeah, it, it's almost like the diamonds scene from Girlhood, but it's like just dumb as shit. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. These boys that they're like kind of. Yeah. societally told to be interested in are mm-hmm. basically these like idiot buffoons and like <laughs> just watching them jump around and like roughhouse with each other right. is like very um eye-opening i think yeah. <laughs> by the time it arrives yeah 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 man as far as like the trial run for girlhood i kind of agree because in this movie compared to tomboy like the music adds a lot to it like there's that synthy undercurrent Throughout everything we're watching, oh, I need that. Well, I know, and like I understand, I understand that I need to have that there. But like for me, this is probably my least interesting. Favorite. Just because um, I don't know. It's like how invested am I in these characters and what they're going through? And it did feel small to me in the same way that you said that like tomboy felt small to you. Aesthetically, it was very pleasing. Again, with the shots of like them in the water mm-hmm. and the music, like the synthy score and some of the slow mo stuff. But ultimately, like, I don't know if I really got invested in these characters as much as I did in like Tomboy and A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. See, I'm very much the opposite. Like, I was so into <laughs> this kid's journey, like, the way that she didn't know why she was. Remind me of the fits too on top of girlhood. It did, yeah, yeah, definitely. Just like yeah, the instant she saw this person, was like, I need to be that or be with that or to be a part mm-hmm. of that and that attraction. And like, this is an idea I I talk a lot about these like horny movies all the time. And one of my favorite <laughs> like themes in those is like you kind of being a victim of your own attractions to things and like Mm. even when you know something is bad for you and like actively hurting you not being able to pull away from it just because it's just how it is Mm -hmm. and like the way that this older girl keeps taking advantage of her and like stringing her along and like using her in these like increasingly uncomfortable ways uh and she still keeps going back for more because she just like can't help it yeah and like the journey of it is like her learning to like set a boundary there and like cut it off when it's like no longer useful um, I, I just found that like really emotionally engaging. Honestly, like the character I most was into was her friend. There's that scene where she has sex with the guy, oh, and man. like, and I I got it though. Like I understood why she felt yeah. the need to sleep with him, but to me that was one of the best scenes of the film where she just wants a kiss and he will not kiss her. Yeah, he's just he's there to fuck, mm-hmm. and like that broke my heart. Yeah. And, like, that character I really, like, identified with. And their relationship is just as important as the central attraction. And the movie can't resolve itself without resolving their issues, too, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really interested in movies that look at these, like, particular, like, teenage girl institutions. That's what I liked about the fits, too. Like, the dance team and the allure of that. And then, like, the things that you give up in order to join that level of feminine identity. 
and the ways that like women struggle within those uh, those arenas and like the ways that their desires kind of like like you were saying get them into trouble you know she wants this relationship with this woman or this older girl but it's just like ultimately not going to be satisfying for her no matter what she does and it's the same with the the friend like she's really really into this guy that is actually um interested in the older girl and she it's like she has this idea that once they get together like she'll she'll be happy somehow or like this part of her will be fulfilled and then the reality of their relationship is so disappointing like she's just trying to kiss him and he's like refusing to do it and you see her face kind of falling as this is happening um but i think as a child i never like i was never part of the dance team or like any of those performative like glamorous groups of women but they were always so alluring to me it's like i i built up my identity against them but i always wanted to be a part of it yeah, you're like locked time. out of this club right. it's like i don't need you anyway i'm in yeah. the weird shit yeah i'm a weird girl <laughs> yeah. but it's like they're so at the same time like they're so beautiful and i really like the scenes where like the girls were getting ready for these dance the locker room access. yeah exactly yeah. yeah i mean it was really really compelling to me in that way and that's where I feel like the eye from like tomboy is coming in is like watching children in their like natural state in these mm-hmm. like locker rooms. Like that really it's just as present here, but it's like used sparsely and it's not like the whole movie for me. Yeah. And then we leave away from that a lot and we get just these intimate interactions between two characters at a time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think this is what can I complain a little bit about Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Yeah. Like I've been holding yeah. it back. I really like that movie and I don't mm-hmm. want to sound negative on it at all. But when I'm when I'm watching it and I'm like, this is the movie everyone's sort of like championing is like her announcement is like this important director. Mm-hmm. Like all these other movies that she's made are like, you know, training up for the big day for her to deliver this wall yeah. up. Well, Girlhood was Girlhood's great. The masterpiece, in my opinion. Anyway, go on. And yeah, I'm thinking about Girlhood and Water Lilies, which are my favorite two films from her while I'm watching that. And I'm like, well, what separates Portrait of a Lady on Fire from these like two earlier films that I think are like slightly better to me personally? Mm-hmm. And I, I recognize that some of that is the absence of a score in that film. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's just a personal like failing on my part as an audience. That has nothing <laughs> to do with the movie or anything yeah. else. But also, I just feel like there's this automatic prestige that comes from it being this like quietly patient film mm-hmm. that's set during a costume drama like period piece. It's set yeah. in this like right. earlier time. And it's sort of erasing, in a way, the things that make Celine Sciamma special as a director. It's like these like already established criteria we've come up with for like what makes an important art movie. Mm-hmm. And it's reminding me a lot of um, Todd Haynes's films Carol and Far From Heaven, which get similar accolades mm-hmm. for being like, his highest works. And I feel like they're the, his least distinct yeah. as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And his those two movies in particular, the same as Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where it's like these quietly expressed, a lot of it's queer desire or like Mm -hmm. across like interracial lines. Um, It's these quietly expressed modes of like adoration where I feel like the same tools were used in Water Lilies and Girlhood, but they happen to be movies that feature Rihanna dance parties or like trips to McDonald's. And like automatically that like sort of like cuts them out of the conversation of being these important artistic works where like personally where I'm coming from, like my experience with films is I'm more attracted to that modernism and that Mm -hmm. like 
we can find this like heightened artistic lens in the modern world and And, our experience with the way things are now. I'm I'm with you. Like with girlhood, it's like a group of black underprivileged girls, like singing Rihanna in a hotel room is like high art. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like I feel that shit to my core. Like I'm with you. Like poor Chevrolet on fire is like, it's sort of this like self-important sort of art piece, but do I feel it like in my bones as much as I did like that anything in girlhood? Like, no, probably not. Well, the release of it is all at the very last minute. So it's, it's hard to say that as a whole because I feel like the last few minutes is like really when all the kind of avalanches onto you. But I, I mm-hmm. even felt more in like Tomboy. Like I would say Tomboy and Girlhood are my two favorite from her. And then everything else kind of falls by the wayside. But not falls by the wayside, but those are my two yeah. favorite from her yeah i think i would agree with that as well i i mean i really really loved portrait of a lady on fire and i appreciated especially like the middle to the end Uh, basically as soon as the mother leaves and says okay you have these six days to to do this um i mean i just thought it was the community that they built together outside of the confines of society like just quietly enjoying their time with each other and with the housekeeper and like you know, honoring the experience of women painting these scenes of of an abortion. I mean, I thought that those were really special, but I agree that like there's just something that is kind of compelling to me about focusing artistic attention on these things that are seen as like trashy or or low art, like seeing that each um, human experience has artistic significance and it doesn't have to be these like you know like a, a wealthy woman being painted by this famous painter yeah like the biggest heartbreaking scene for me in water lilies and there's a few that are really really big but one of the biggest heartbreakers is directly following a, a character arguing about whether or not they can order a happy meal right if they're like too old to order a happy mm-hmm. meal at a mcdonald's and like i i just feel like if we remove that from her work it's, it's almost unfair to say this because if you view Portrait of Lady on Fire with her larger catalog, there's a lot of overlap that we've already talked yeah. about. Like her use of music and her like sort of femme inner worlds mm-hmm. and her like lesbianism, like that, that yeah. lens, like that all is in all of these movies in one way or another, sometimes stronger than others. Mm-hmm. But removing her work to this like older time frame, I really do feel like removes what makes her specifically interesting. Yeah. Like, I, if you showed me that movie, I don't know that I would have guessed she had made yeah. it mm-hmm. without the credits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I just think that she does very distinct work in these other things. And I, I don't want to like, I, I, I just think it's worth questioning whether or mm-hmm. not like that is a legitimate way to view her art. Like it's automatically more important in that context. Right. Or if like it's okay for her to like continue to look at how kids now interact with pop culture and things yeah. like that. I think that's just as worthy of like artistic elevation. Yeah. Like you were just saying. Yeah. And I hope that she continues to do that. Yeah. And I think... One thing about Girlhood is that it's the only film of hers that isn't centered around like white children, like white French children. So I feel like it was a departure in that way. And then this um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire felt, like you said, totally different from her other three films. Like it was outside of like a child context. And it was also like in this other in the 1770s. So I, I hope that that is a sign of her like exploring outside of the maybe just like the white child lens but without like 
moving in a direction towards like more mainstream art pieces. I think the thing that I love about her is again like the eroticism yeah of her art and like I love the eroticism of like McDonald's as opposed to like the eroticism <laughs> of like this 18th century and like painting gel on a girl's hair like right before she's going in the water yeah I like those like synchronized swimming routines too because like it feels like a low rent 2000s indie film version of like Busby Berkeley like musicals mm-hmm. those like big right. stage yeah. pieces with all the beautiful women like yeah, synchronized yeah. swimming <laughs> and this is like the community pool version of that <laughs> and I, I just like that as like a um, entertainment value like on the cheap vibe yeah. like watching those children perform is visually fascinating mm-hmm. just as much so as those big Busby Berkeley pieces but she did it for like 1% of the cost right. she just has such a good eye for like these visual compositions mm-hmm. and that's why I don't want to seem like I'm complaining and that's kind of honestly why I waited so long to say that because <laughs> I don't want to seem like I'm complaining about portrait in any way because it's such a well-crafted visual piece of art like it's excellence is almost self-explanatory right. So I just want to push back a little bit on like why these other movies aren't being held up to that same standard because yeah. I think they're just as good. The thing I like about her other films are that it's like feels very true to like a modern experience of like developing homosexuality. And I think that it's important to have those movies especially when the the characters are like young teenagers to have those movies that don't end in like total tragedy like you can develop your identity without it being this like something that that ultimately tears you down i don't know so i i I think her early films are special in that way yeah they feel like true and honest and real and not like she's pulling the strings to tell you a good story or whatever it's just like real observant observant Well, did you have a favorite out of these? I know James and I were kind of fixated on girlhood and, you know, Tomboy and Water Lilies. I think Water Lilies would probably be my favorite. And I think, honestly, that Portrait of a Lady would be my second favorite. I really loved girlhood, but I felt, too, that, like, the last act really, like, took me out. Yeah, so I can't, I just can't put it in my top for that reason. But I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire, maybe also because I hadn't seen her other films besides girlhood. Um... I liked kind of the investigation of like women as as a like an economic kind of resource and this like tiny utopia that they create together um, that can only last for so long. Um, so I think that would be second favorite. Water lilies is my favorite. Yeah, there's that one image of like domesticity where like one of them's chopping up food and the other mm-hmm. one's like making tea. And... Yeah, God, the biggest mushrooms I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, there's like a that could be like an oil painting right there, yeah. like that study. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And yeah, this woman makes fantastic films. <laughs> they're all very good. If you said any of them were your favorite, I wouldn't balk at you. Like, mm-hmm. uh, they're all great. Yeah. Well, it is Mardi Gras time. Come see Crew Divine in the quarter on Mardi Gras mm-hmm. Day. And if not, just go to our website and look at Crew Divine's tab at the top uh, if you want to see pictures of us dressed basically like drag clowns uh, in the quarter. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with an episode about cross-dressing women. So not that far away from what we're already talking about. Wait, about cross-dressing women? Yeah, like women dressed as men. Mm-hmm. How many... How many- are there how many movies um way more than we're gonna cover we're just gonna do three because that's how this uh <laughs> podcast works okay i'm not well i'm not a part of this yeah yeah so it's, uh, <laughs> I, I will listen i will say we're doing one drama and two comedies 
that makes okay. you that clears it up in any way. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and check out Mr. Hot Dog Boy's favorite movies of the decade, yes. which is listed in the notes for this episode. Mm. So good. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.